Welcome to the Fear Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business, but as we know, it actually stands for Easton, right there. Fury, no, that's me, and Adam Belmar. Uh, I'm your host, John Fury. Uh, we are joined here by uh, a truly special guest. I want to make one thing clear. This is the robot edition of the Fury Theory Podcast. Mm-hmm. We're joined by John McGilligan, who is the Chief Executive Officer, CEO of York Exponential, President of the Fortress Initiative, and graduate of Liberty University. Uh, John, first, tell, tell us a little bit about York Exponential, and I'm really fascinated to hear about the Fortress Initiative. Tell uh, us about both those things. Sure. Uh, so York Exponential, we are what is called a collaborative robotics company. Uh, so collaborative robots are designed to work next to people, not replace them. So their human size are smaller, easy to program, safe to be around. Uh, one of our big focuses is not focusing on automation, but rather augmentation. So making the American worker more powerful. Uh, really, we want to usher in the first generation of superheroes. So the kids are kind of growing up with seeing this in the movies. They're not scared of the technology. With great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to instill that in them. Uh, within our company, we either do, um, we'll put the collaborative robots in. If someone's had a hard time filling a position, really it's you know six to 12 months, they can't find someone. So we would put our robots in to work alongside the existing workers that they have. We also realized that a lot of folks couldn't afford the technology. So we have a, what's called robot as a service. So you can actually hire our robots to augment your current workforce. So do, you, do these robots have to do any drug tests or anything? They do not, and they show up on time. They don't sleep. They're, uh, they're very reliable. It's, it's actually, it's funny. So we went through this experience recently where um, we were bringing some of our robots to Fall City, Nebraska, and all of the workers in the factory were, like, cheering the robot coming in because it's doing a job that nobody else wanted to do. They couldn't find one kid in town, so everyone had to take turns doing this terrible job. <laughs> and so they're all extremely excited. So, so that's the kind of opportunities we look for. Excellent. Uh, we are really happy to have you. And today we're going to talk a lot about AI and robots. We're going to probe a little bit deeper because we think this is a very fascinating thing for policymakers in Washington, D.C. And we had John in town, and we were talking at a bar once, and we said, let's, let's, let's bring him into the podcast. Uh, Adam, do you have any questions about this before we start the podcast? Maybe just an observation that uh, most great ideas that uh, come from John Fury originate in a bar. That's it. <laughs> John, you want to throw anything in while we No, let's get going. All right, theory one, AI, uh-oh. Uh, I was reading a column by a uh, well-known political theorist, Henry Kissinger. Uh, he's been joined in by guys like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, who say that AI is going to be the doom of humanity. Um, you're the expert here. Is AI going to be the doom of humanity, or is it going to actually, with your theory, help us live better, cheaper, better lives? So I guess the, uh, the short answer is Maybe. Um, I mean, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you. The, the truth is, and that's why this conversation is so important, some of the decisions we make now will affect probably the next 100 to 1,000 years, right? And, and so this isn't science fiction where I think that's where a lot of people are putting this. The danger, I think, when you've got guys like Elon Musk, who I like, I mean, I think the dude's incredibly smart. Obviously, Stephen Hawking's very smart. When you demonize it in that way, people tend to just resist it and want to move away from it. It's not really an option. You know, artificial intelligence is already in our lives. There's a difference between strong and weak AI. So most people, you know, they tend to put a lot of it in the movie kind of bucket. The truth is, if we do this correctly and responsibly, oh, the benefits are going to be through the roof. I mean, we can solve all sorts of problems that we've really, really struggled with. Um, But the flip side of that is if we ignore it, it's not passive. I mean, it's within our lives right now, and it's doing things. 
The other side is if we do back away from it, China is a good example, they're embracing this technology. They're embracing it at such a rapid rate. So if we do this responsibly, a lot of amazing things could come out of this. If we ignore it or are irresponsible, then, yeah, there could be ramifications that us and our children will deal with for generations. So I was the, – the part of the article was Henry Kessinger was talking about this uh, game called Go. Mm-hmm. And you – it takes a lot of strategizing and, and thinking through. Um, we were talking about wouldn't it be great if we had a robot here to help us edit this podcast afterwards because, you know, Adam does a good job, but it takes a little bit of a time for him to do it. Right. Is that possible? Yes. So this kind of stuff is happening right now. Yeah, I believe it's IBM. They just uh, – the the name of the movie, and it, it escapes my mind, but there was recently um, IBM's Watson edited down a trailer for a movie, and it actually made a lot of sense. And I'll give you guys the link for that. So, yeah, we're not that far away. Uh, essentially, what you need to do is you need to feed it with lots and lots of examples. Mm-hmm. And then it gets better and better and better. It'll start to write, like, now AI is writing musical scores. So that's a good opportunity or a good example of how you can use AI to help you. But it can still be fed from you, so it's going to learn from your technique. So it'll be an extension or an augmentation of your capabilities. So that's really what we should be using AI for is we do the human-human stuff, and then we use AI to do some more of the tedious kind of tasks. Yeah, and I think back to your point earlier about how uh, we as a society view AI from, from 10, 20, 30 years ago up until this point. You know, To your point is sometimes we resist it, sometimes we're scared of it, whether it's younger people or older people, really, mm-hmm. uh, the change. So what is it that, that, um, that robots and AI – can do and what can't they do? How, how do you explain the integration with the current workforce and why it's not to be feared, it's actually to be embraced as a partner? Right. So I think you actually touched on something incredibly valuable that it's probably worth taking a step back to understand why people have the impression they have right now and how we can correct that. So you go back to the 50s and we first had computers, we first had robots. Human beings tend to think very linear. So we're thinking like if we have a robot now, within two years we'll have a robot butler and then we'll have jetpacks and we'll be able to do all these things. When none of it happened, it all got put in like the science fiction bucket. So in, in the West, and this is a unique difference between the West and the East, which is why we need to talk about this kind of stuff. In the West, robots are either almost always the villain or comic relief, right? Right. But in the East, it's not like that. Like in Japan, China, the robots are the heroes. So they embrace this technology very, very quickly, and it's already bent into them that robots and AI are good. Hmm. Now, on our side, the first time that anyone actually saw real robots in real life was like in the 70s when they started being rolled into automakers and yeah. industrial. So the first time people ever saw a real robot – the reality was, I'm going to put one robot in, how many people can I get rid of? And so that is a kind of a generational holdover. And the difference is the kids aren't really seeing that. So some of this, uh, this mix between what's the hype, how, what can you actually do, and how close are we to things, I think it's an educational piece, not only for employers, but also employees. Like, everyone kind of needs to be eased into this. Yeah. The truth is, the tech is a lot further along than we think, but it's not as far along as it can be when it's actually going to be incredibly useful. So, Adam Belmar, your kids, they like Transformers growing up, right? I mean, isn't this part of their whole... This is what he's saying. It's John saying that Transformers, that kind of whole concept. And what's the... Uh, what are the big movies right now where the the people turn into robots and stuff like that? Uh, uh, Avengers or something? Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm throwing the question your way. <laughs> you're like, get out of here, John. Let me take this. <laughs> no, but you're right. The Transformers are the... Like the Autobots... Um, and I don't want to reveal, and now that I have, what kind of a nerd I am about all that. But to this, <laughs> I think one of the things 
that uh, to your theory, John Fury, uh, with regard to Henry Kissinger and the article that he wrote, the moral implications of how we consider the development of AI and, as Dr. Kissinger wrote, the imperative that the United States tackle this in a holistic and a comprehensive way at a national, federal level is so important. I'm lost in understanding the implications. I get when we talk about medical ethics, I understand um, some of the easier to digest examples of how an artificial intelligence tackles things different than a human mind. But can you unpack a little bit what it is that Dr. Kissinger and others are saying about how we need to tackle this at a national level? Why should the folks down the street in Capitol um, be thinking about not only commissions, but setting some parameters about how we do this in a way that, as you pointed out at the beginning, won't leave us in a real bad place because we didn't. Right. What yeah. is there? Yeah, so the, the two there's probably two very large issues that I see. One is is China. I mean, the Made in China 2025 initiative. If you haven't had a chance to read it, you should look at it. Essentially, China made the decision that by 2025, they're going to own every emerging market. So artificial intelligence, robotics, the Internet of Things, they're doubling down on all of this. The flip side of that is they make a lot of the things that we use. So the Internet of Things, right now there's uh, 8 billion connected devices. Within two years, that's going to more than double to 20 billion. And those are all going to be made by China in our house. So not paying attention to this, there's already AI built into all sorts of things that we have that can be turned on. So that is a national security issue. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we are sorely mistaken thinking our kids are going to be fine because they can use an iPad. I don't know how many times I've talked to people and they're like, oh, my grandkid's a genius because they're using an iPad. Your grandkid is not a genius. They're a very good consumer. (laughs) And, And quite frankly, they're going to be the most easily manipulated generation in human history. Right. And, and we, think, we think somehow they're brilliant. It, it, it would be like if you went to another country and you couldn't speak the language so you couldn't ask to go to the bathroom. That doesn't make you an idiot. You just didn't grow up there. But what are the ethical, if not moral, implications for AI development? I'm, I'm trying to hold in this right. part of the show to John Fury's original theory, AI, uh-oh. Because that's really at the heart of what Kissinger was writing about. Right. And I guess I don't understand AI enough... We can say it's it's out there now, and I kind of get that. I have my tr- trouble putting my finger on it, but what do we need to do as a nation that we're not doing? Yeah, I think a, p- a big part of it is um, we do still think it's science fiction, so it's not really being taught in schools. It's still specialized. Okay. So the reality is a lot of folks aren't even touching this kind of technology until maybe they're a master's degree student or Ph.D. When the technology is actually becoming a lot more accessible – the reality is if you don't understand that it's happening and how it's happening, you are being manipulated very, very quickly at a young age. So let me throw AI in with social media and mm-hmm. the idea in China, I've read a lot about this, where they actually, how you uh, are on social media and how you're rated is a value judgment that's largely done through artificial means. Yes. And so if you if you go into a store people kind of scan whatever you've got and they know exactly where you are on the value chain and they treat you differently if you're lower or higher it's like they make value judgment based on your clothes and what you're wearing but it's not what you're wearing it's what's in your your social media profile and i do think that this is one of the most interesting things about ai someone's making a value judgment that's actually a computer and not a human being 
Correct. And, and it's not even that they're just making a value judgment. From a very young age, I mean, you know, your kids are watching YouTube, they're using Facebook, they're using social media, or they're using devices. Nobody's passive, right? So it's not like people are just gathering data. They're actively nudging you in certain directions. Right. So big companies might say, you know what, based on our projections, in five years, we're going to need more people who like this. And so they actively manipulate your kids to funnel them into a very specific group because it meets their projections. I mean, that's the kind of technology that's out there right now. Everybody's scared about what are you doing with my data. You should be more scared about how is the data manipulating you. And how does that impact, you know, robotics? You know, what's, what's the next step on robotics? And, and is, can it be combined with social media to really impact how we live our lives? Maybe, yeah. So uh, probably one of the largest leaps and is not going to be necessarily in robotics first, but it will be in what's called the Internet of Things, if you guys have heard that yeah, term before. Sure. So interconnected devices powered by AI, computer vision. Um, the robotics piece will probably come next because, as you were asking me earlier, robots aren't quite there yet. I mean, usually forward, but they're still, um, they're still in their infancy stages. AI, however, and the Internet of Things, I mean, that stuff is accelerating because there's no physical limitations. I mean, there's infrastructure, but once the 5G rollout happens, all that's going to move very, very, very fast. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, about the 5G and just it's not just um, robotics that's going to – having that appetite for data, appetite for capacity, our telecom capacity. Are we going to be at a place, 5G or, or beyond, to be able to handle the needs of, say, the kind of things you're producing? Yeah, so the leap forward with the 5G is probably going to be one of the most significant pieces. But this is also, I think, the, the danger for small communities like York. I mean, we're unique. We actually have a dark fiber line that's being run through. It's privately funded by local investors. Yeah. But most communities aren't going to have access to this kind of stuff. So the 5G is it's a double-edged sword, right? So when it rolls out, the technology is going to advance very, very quickly. But places that don't have access to this, it's going to be like trying to run a business without electricity. Right. And so communities across the U.S. will just collapse in on themselves. Because even the large businesses that are there that are made the major employers, if they can't operate robots at scale, they're just going to leave. And so the tax base is gone. There's no opportunities. And what happened so in the 70s will get a lot worse. It's going to be part of a, a, a small, medium, or large towns economic development plan is to have what you, you call it, the dark... So dark fiber, dark yeah. Fiber. So, so the broadband, like running broadband to rural areas is something that we've talked about a lot. Um, in the past, though, it's been mostly around the discussions of, oh, you can live somewhere for cheap and work for a company in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. Mm-hmm. But once you add robots to that and that kind of stuff, it's going to be about a town's capability to exist. And that's where I think the largest challenge is going to be for small communities that have no idea this stuff's even happening. So, uh, John, let's get out of this section right now, but I want to ask, what are the top, just to Adam's point, what are the top two things that the federal government can do to make sure that we are leading the world on AI development and deployment in a positive way? And is it federal spending or is it getting rid of regulations? I think some of it's probably getting rid of regulations, but probably the broadband infrastructure, like actually building an infrastructure for this technology to sit on while simultaneously focusing on education and awareness. Those two things together, I think, are a good, solid standpoint to build a foundation. Uh, That's our largest problem is once it happens and it jumps, communities that don't have the infrastructure and didn't see it coming will just crumble and collapse. Well, and the good news is, as you know, uh, there is a 5G summit at the White House going on next week. So um, at least it's a priority for the federal government right now. And the president. Theory two, I'll be back. Okay, that was not a very good, the best I could do. Arnold Schwarzenegger in 1984 had this great movie, as we all know, The Terminator, where he went, started in 2012, 
29 and came back to get Sarah Connor. We all know the storyline. Um, you know, he was a cyborg. He was a mean. That's like 10 years from now, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, just the other day, a drone shot another drone out of the sky. First time that thing that, that's ever happened. How close are we to being back to the Terminator? Just talk a little bit, John, about the Defense Department application for AI and robotics, because I think it's going to be a huge spend and then a huge savings of American lives, but there's probably also a little bit of a moral judgment there about machines killing people. Yeah, so a lot of folks are talking about what are called laws, so lethal autonomous weapons. I mean, this is something that's being discussed all across the world right now. Um, The truth is, in the United States at least, we tend to focus on human-in-the-loop technology, so even if it's AI... There's very often the kill decision is still made by a human. I mean, the truth is, you know, we might be in the last phase of there won't be fighter pilots after this. I mean, just because, you know, drones can move so quickly. Um, I think that the challenge is going to be while we debate some of these, other countries will just do it. I mean, they'll worry about the repercussions later. Um, So they're just going to race ahead with this. And I think that's where you'll start to see us playing catch up. And some of the things that we're debating right now, people go, I don't care about that anymore. I don't care about that anymore. That's probably when you get into a little more dangerous territory of some of the stuff that you were talking about. Uh, you know, the Terminator, though, is different because the idea is from the Terminator, it wasn't that um, – so the robots just became self-aware. So this idea that self-awareness is what will make it happen. Mm-hmm. The thing that, like, guys like Elon Musk are scared of, if, have you ever heard of the paperclip conundrum? Mm-hmm. Do you guys know what this is? No. So the idea is that an AI won't destroy us because it's smart enough or it becomes self-aware. It's that it's just really efficient. So, like, the, the idea is that you create this AI, and its only job is to make paperclips, and it just becomes really, really good at making paperclips and decides that it should use all of the resources we have to create paperclips. Ah, okay. <laughs> and so it just starts to make lots of paperclips, and then forests die, and we have no food. And, like, but, and it's not that it's intelligent. It's just incredibly efficient. Right, right, right. So, so the, you know, the Terminator, the Terminator concept of them becoming self-aware is a little bit of a fallacy because the truth is that's assuming that humans are at the top of intelligence and nothing can be smarter than us. So if the Terminator <laughs> scenario played out, the, the robots might be as smart as us for about half a second, and then after that they'll be exponentially smarter. And, you know, how often do you walk around trying to step on ants? I mean, we don't think about it. I mean, there's amoebas and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe the AI in that scenario would become so smart that it doesn't even really think about us, which is probably a best-case scenario. Right, right. But talk a little bit about, as you're, as you're talking to people in Washington and you're talking about robotics, what are the, what are the top couple uh, things that you pitch to people in, in Washington about defense policy? And the other question I have is, uh, who's the best at this outside of us? Okay, so um, who are you most worried about from an international competitive standpoint? Yeah, so um, most of what we talk about right now is a very strong narrative around robots saving American jobs, not taking them. I mean, that's been the narrative that's been out there. It's either Terminator or it's going to take our jobs. So trying to couch it in a way that regular people can understand it, uh, I think is incredibly important. It's hard, I mean, especially for politicians. A lot of folks have never really thought about this. So the minute you mention robots, it's like panic. Right. Um, so, so getting the messaging down and the real benefit that it can provide for small communities like York, I think is critical. The other thing is a lot of communities have jobs that are available, that there's a thinking that um, millennials are lazy or the kids are lazy, and that's why they don't want to do those jobs. I mean, the truth is they just they grew up with technology. Their brains are shaped differently. I mean, they can do lots of things very well, and there are just some things that you're never going to convince them to do. So probably the being okay to let those jobs go, use the robots to augment the current workforce that we have, understanding the next generation will do something different. So a lot of this is a workforce problem. 
Right. So the kids are really good, at, for example, at Fortnite. Right. <laughs> they do. They do love Fortnite. But it, it's not always. I'm sure you don't um, encounter a, an attitude of oh, right, just augmentation. I'm sure that a lot of times you encounter a resistance because they see it as competition yes. for jobs. And and I, I know, because I've seen in a lot of manufacturing plants, there's a drive from the leadership of the company to go more automated because the employees are so unreliable and protect, you know, perhaps it's the, the skill level and, and they just can't keep the workforce there showing up every day sober, et cetera. Right. So, you know, there still is that cultural element um, because so many of our, our jobs have been in manufacturing right. o- over the years. I know it's, it's changing rapidly now. Do you see attitudes change? I mean, you must confront this at Chambers of Commerce and, and, and you know, as you, you go around the country talking to folks. Where is that attitude, you know, in terms of taking jobs away? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of it is once people see the robots, so the robots that we put in are much smaller, so they don't right. look as threatening as the traditional robots. So it's the image, too. That's you know, true. people have it in their mind. We start very young, and we typically have we'll have kids come in with their parents. So we found that even within uh, when we put in robots within a factory, we'll bring virtual reality, augmented reality. Like we'll let the, the folks program the robots, touch them. So there's a little bit of a sense of pride that they've actually programmed a robot, and maybe their kids or grandkids haven't. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks, you know, I'm not techie, so I'm not going to be able to do it. Once they see that the robot can make their lives better and they can touch it, see it, feel it, it's not as scary. So a lot of this is an experience, right? right? We make sure that people are brought alongside. Um, but you're right, the Chambers of Commerce, I mean, most folks haven't thought about this stuff <laughs> at all. They're just unaware that the technology is moving so quickly. They, they do, though, have the most recent example of when communities didn't embrace mobile technology. Right. You know, they, they underestimated the iPhone. So a lot of these communities get that they missed the boat on the last thing. So when they look at this kind of technology, they know they have to embrace the future because when they didn't, a lot of our towns got decimated. Um, So that narrative, combined with more of a national defense narrative, especially in small communities, uh, we tend to be very patriotic, care about our country. So when you you put it in the context of if we don't do this, our communities will not only fall behind, but a country like China might lap us and we will never catch up. People tend to rally more around patriotism in communities like ours. And so they're willing to put some of those aside for the greater good, but it's really how you talk about it and communicate. You know, um, the popular culture, science fiction aside, some really wonderful, incredibly prescient authors, Clark, Asimov, others, have taken us from the 1940s until now on a journey so far beyond where we are, the assumption of all of the things that you're talking about and the social, economic problems. And so we, we've really been able to envision this for so long. And I, I like the way that you talk about the conundrum for talking about it now. In the 50s, the fear was, my job's going to be taken away. It didn't materialize. It was an unfounded fear but not so unfounded that it couldn't become a reality in the future. And now, how we all talk about this is so important. We say robots, you're talking about augmentation versus full automation. But when we think about AI, those are the uh, platforms that are going to drive the buses, that are going to drive the cabs, fly the planes... And those are the jobs that are going to go away. It's no longer just a robotic humanoid. It's an intelligence that's integrated into hardware that allows 
the jobs traditionally held by humans to be taken away. And I wonder if you'd talk about that for just a second um, in, in, in terms of e- economies, right? I mean, John Easton talked a little bit about unreliable employees. Maybe it's skill. Maybe it's sobriety. Maybe it's just the fact that robots don't get sick and, as you said, can work three shifts and all of these things. But is it is it going to be more beneficial in the long run, as I assume? And are there just going to be people and towns that are just going to miss this wave and get left out and there's going to be nothing for them to do but to move or try and catch up? Or open an inn. Yeah, right. I mean, the reality is, yes, there will be towns that just get left behind. I mean, this is this is a winners and losers scenario. It is. Which is why, you know, talking about... What other countries are doing? What are, what is it we're doing? I mean, this is this. There will be winners and losers, but the reality is the speed at which the technology will catch up because it's exponential. There will be no catching up afterwards. It will be like I don't care how fast your horse is, you're not catching up with a rocket. Yeah, right. You can drive that horse as hard as you want. Yeah. So that's why we have, um, I think, this conundrum. And it's a good way to put it is is we don't know everything, and we tend to have um, this feeling that unless we know the outcome and we can measure it, that we're not going to do it. And the way I liken it to is, you know, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and, you know, you look to the other side, you can't see what's there. I mean, it's really, really tiny. It's far, far away. And, uh, and most people will say, well, until I know what's over there, I'm not going to start building a bridge. But the way that works is as you build the bridge, the other side starts to become more and more in focus. But folks are like, unless I know exactly what's going to happen, I'm not going to do anything. I mean, go back to 1890. Imagine if you were to tell someone that they'd be able to fly like a bird. They would have slapped you in the face. I mean, just foolishness, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it would have seemed ridiculous. But within their lifetime, they were able to do that. You know, John Fury, this is a communications challenge. It's one that that York Exponential, that you are working on. We do the same thing when it comes to biomedical research and the investment that, that the federal government makes. Because in the essence of what is attainable, and yet for many people unrecognizable it's too far too out of focus why are we making this investment we 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 can bridge that this is something so far afield of anything that 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 is normal to a human being that it's almost impossible to bring it into focus yeah and let me yeah let me that's a good point adam Uh, you know i I read a book when i was in high school of all things called uh alvin toffler future shock and it talked about how hard keeping up with the future was on normal people and how people, some people are just going to drop out right. and not be able to compete. If technology moves so quickly, people can't comprehend it or live with it or understand it. Usually government is one place that puts the brakes on development because people can't handle it. Right. For, yeah, and I, a perfect example of that is this idea of what Adam talked about, which is people, self-driving cars. Everyone wants a self-driving car, except a lot of people don't want, you know, like truck drivers don't really want self-driving cars or self-driving trucks because they want to keep their jobs. And so um, there is a human cost to this, right? Talk a little bit about the human cost. Yeah, so so truck driving is actually probably a perfect example of of an opportunity for augmentation. So, you know, we have a gap in truck drivers. We don't have enough truck drivers right now, but there are people that want to keep their jobs. So probably the first thing it will roll out will not be fully autonomous trucks. It will right. be platooning, right? So you'll have an experienced truck driver being at the front with lots of autonomous vehicles behind. So that's a perfect example of probably the first step in augmentation versus automation. Mm-hmm. But, but one of the things, so, you know, we were talking a little bit about how do we engage communities? How do you not leave people behind? So one of the things we've had success with is wrapping it in a historical narrative. 
So we've been pushing something. Um, it's called the York Plan. It came out of our community in 1940. No one in York even knew we did this, but we saved the world. So it's an interesting story because as we've wrapped this narrative and making manufacturers and regular people the hero of this story, they're, they're starting to be willing to face the future. So in the spring of 1940, before the United States had entered World War II, most of the nation wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, you know, the Nazis weren't here, burnt out from World War I, the Depression. We just we don't care. It's not right. our problem. The leaders in New York, though, realized that whether they wanted the war or not, it was coming. So they had to get ready. So they were given six months and three guiding principles. Four families were nominated to do this. The first was everything from now on is about facing this one challenge. It doesn't matter if other people say it's not happening. It doesn't matter if they say it's not a problem. The world is going to change whether we want it or not, and we need to be ready. The second is for the time being, we put aside all political differences and wholeheartedly support the president in preparing the nation for the coming change. So people were divided back then. I mean, it's very similar to what's happening right now in our nation, but people realize that our differences may be important, but they're not as important as what's about to happen. We, we, can, we can fight about it later. We can hate each other later. But for right now, we need to get ready to face this thing that's coming. And the last was, with all grace, they'd seek advice and counsel from every member of society. So you had the owners of the factory sitting down with the workers, even kids. And the reason they did that was because nobody knew when the war would end. They didn't know if it would be five years or 500 years. Right. And so they included everybody in this. After six months and using these three guiding principles, they announced what would later be called the York Plan. It's a 15-point outline. It's everything San Francisco has been doing for the last 10 years, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, accelerated education. When war was declared, the president didn't have a plan, sent out a request for proposals, and the York Plan won by default. Wow. Spread through Rotary Clubs, a community of communities all turned to defense. They repurposed everything that they had. It's one of the things credited with us winning the war. Huh, I didn't wow. realize that. But 2.0 is where we are now. Correct. And that is really what you're about. Yeah, so, so we believe that there is a coming change in technology. It is a national security issue, especially Chinese-made robots. I mean, the baby boomers are retiring, the silver tsunami, 10,000 every single day. Kids aren't going to do those same jobs. Within five to ten years, the market will be flooded with cheap Chinese robots. When that happens, we are at a very serious disadvantage. If, you know, if someone decides to go to war with us and turn all our robots off, and we don't know how to make things, or we can't service things, we can't build our own robots... We're going to be in a whole world of hurt. Theory three, the apple of my AI. Uh, I want to talk about this because you're talking about China. Um, the president has engaging himself in a little trade war with the Chinese, putting tariffs on, on products. There was a lot of discussion about, Mr. President, you can't do this to Apple because then our iPhones would be too expensive. I want to probe this because of. Uh, I think it's fascinating that we do have a solution to building Apple products, and one of the, what the president said was, well, why don't you just build them here? And people said, well, we can't do that. But you can do that with the right robots. You can, yeah. So this is another example of augmentation. So you've got things happening in China, and, and the truth is a lot of what's happening now, with, whether it's the tariffs, whether what's happening globally, I mean, honestly, we need a space race. Like, we don't have that. Right. Like, we need something to unite us all around where it's forced innovation. Like, we had to get to the moon, and we had to do it before Russia. Yeah. And so out of this, people became engineers because they wanted to be astronauts and, like, all sorts of different things. So forced innovation is a very, very good thing. So a lot of the, this kind of discussion, yeah, we can build that stuff here, and we can build it competitively and maybe even cheaper mm -hmm. if we focus on embracing the technology, augmenting, using artificial intelligence to increase quality. Um, th this is actually probably one of the first times that we could bring all the manufacturing back, be competitive, the quality will be higher. And the exciting thing is as we do this, we'll start to think of new production methods, new ways of doing things. So some of the products we'll be able to create in the future, we can't even imagine right now 
But within five to ten years, I mean, we could be doing exoskeletons, all sorts of incredible things. So, um, you know, one of the things that the big debate's going on is globalization versus nationalization. Okay, you seem to think that we need to be a little bit more cognizant of the national implications, that globalization is fine, except when we have national security threats like China, where they build all our robots, and then we can't figure out how to turn them on. Right. Um, so talk about that in the, in, in the context of competition, national purpose, and how does globalization fit into that? Yeah, so, um, so I actually think we're probably hitting this tipping point where the technology is about to move so quickly that, um, that we're definitely moving into a completely different era. I mean, economics, everything is going to have to change and shift very quickly. The, the national security piece is probably the, the shortest that we should be focusing on because before we know it, I mean, I mean, how many things here have been made in China? I mean, they're just all over the place. Right. And once everything's connected to the Internet, I mean, everything can be shut down very, very fast. Data can be gathered. So that's probably the shortest piece. When it comes to the long-term vision, you know, I'd be lying if I could tell you I knew what 10 years was going to look like from now. I mean, it really is as close as I can say in 1890, and then you're flying and building big cities. And I mean, just think the the, the airplane, how it changed not just um, travel, but it changed warfare. I mean, it changed so it had so many far reaching um, implications that we couldn't wrap our heads around. So what we're focused on right now, especially with the York Plan 2.0 is this transitional period. Like there's things that we know, we don't have enough workers, there are tariffs, we need to start building things again. We need to own and control this technology, maintain it. So those are the things that we're doubling down on right now. The long-term effect on globalization, I'm going to be honest, if I was to tell you, it would be like maybe a best guess, but it's probably going to be way off. I mean, you know, we're one breakthrough away of all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, we're not talking about quantum computers and any of that kind of stuff. But, I mean, once one of these things tip, even if it's battery technology, you know, humanoid robots could be everywhere. That's one of the limitations they have right now is batteries. You know, they can't operate for a very long time. And I was just curious on, on that point, where do you think for the United States, where do you think our greatest strength is with this, with AI? You know, wh- wh- what do we bring to the table that nobody else does, even China or other countries, um, that where we can maybe stay ahead or, or, or at least, I don't know, get ahead later? Yeah, so probably one of the, the largest, so we'll use China as an example. I would say probably our largest advantage is we still value people. I mean, the robots aren't there yet. Like, you can't just put robots in everything and expect it to work. And China's starting to do that, and I think as they do this, they're going to make a lot of mistakes, like, very quickly. The, the robots aren't going to work correctly. They're going to, I mean, they devalue people, push the workers out. Mm. Their production quality will get worse. I think our largest advantage is that we do have a very strong workforce. I mean, we have people, and we value those people. So the fact we're having this discussion at this time period and we care about what the implications are going to be means we can set a solid foundation to do incredible, incredible things. As long as we understand that we're in a transition, I do think the, the concept of augmentation versus full automation is probably our largest advantage that we have right now. And, and, and to add that to, to Adam's point, because we do a lot of work with uh, biomedical research, and mm-hmm. one of our greatest strengths there, of course, is our universities. Right. They're just phenomenal. And they hopefully will stay that way for a long time and we'll have that leading edge. Um, is that true for, um, for, for this technology as well, our, our universities? I would say, yeah. So the university, I mean, we do obviously world-class. I mean, so as much as China's doing, we're still like the leader in AI. I mean, this is, you know, we're leaps and bounds ahead. Now, don't get me wrong, they're catching up. I mean, at first they were catching up through, you know, intellectual property. Like, right. Stealing you, our stuff? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, but then, and then it was through acquisitions. So, you know, I was in China not too long ago, and, 
you know, I'm sitting in a bar and there's a bunch of Westerners there. And when I asked them what they were doing there, they're like, oh, well, my company just got bought. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, that's how they, they were innovating through acquisition. But we're still creating amazing, amazing things. Um, the, the problem, though, is, though, if they're in the universities, very often they don't work their way out. Right, So there's right. a disconnect between industry or people. So it ends up staying there and doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, we need to speed that up. And that might be somewhere where the government could actually come in to make it easier right. to commercialize a lot of this technology, make it accessible to the employers. Um, DARPA just, I think, invested $2 billion in AI. So, I mean, the government's making the big jumps. Um, they waited a little longer. But, um, but who knows? This, this might be the right time. And who are the big thinkers uh, outside of you, who are thinking about the future on this, who are the who are the people that we should be reading and, and paying attention to, other than Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking? Can't read him anymore, or, or Henry Kissinger. I mean, Kissinger. Thank like, you uh, for acknowledging uh, somewhere right, right. in this podcast that Stephen Hawking is in fact dead. <laughs> is he still dead? Yeah. Yes, he's still alive. Stephen Hawking. Um, but who are the people that we should be th- outside of yourself? Who you look to when you're reading this stuff and trying to envision the future? And what companies do you think? outside of your own, are the ones that are the best innovators. Yeah, so um, so th- it, it depends on how crazy you want to get, right? I mean, so there's – if you want to get into things like the singularity where it's, you know, the humans and the robots blending together in AI. I mean, and guys like Ray Kurzweil from the Singularity University he also works at um, Alphabet right now, so Google. Um, so is that is that like if you're, you know, war veteran and you need, you know – No, that's more like human mind computer interface. Yes, yeah. So the blending to the ideas of the singularity is – We'll hit a point where um, artificial intelligence, there'll be an explosion of it. And you'll have one of two options. You either can ignore it and be overrun by it, or you can blend with it. So put it, you put it in your brain? Yep. Yeah, so like guys like Elon Musk are developing like the neural lace and stuff like that. So that's the concept is that we all turn into something else. Um, so that's if you want to get real crazy into that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's a – I mean, I can send you guys over a, a book list, too, of a whole bunch of stuff, like Life 3.0, I think, Max Tegmark. I mean, there's some some – Big you know, there was an interesting right now. segment uh, on 60 Minutes just last weekend about uh, this media lab at MIT, which it's worth going back to take a look at it. I'll leave it right there. All right, excellent. Um, John, we are so happy to have you on the show. The one, thing we, one segment we do here uh, every podcast, and we're going to give you some time to think about it, uh, we're going to ask all of our people on the show, what are they buying or selling today? And we're going to start with... John Easton, what are you buying or selling today? I'm buying because the jobless rate is at its lowest in 49 years today. Wow. Let's just, for context, let's talk about what was happening 49 years ago today. Nixon was president, right? Woodstock was happening. Uh, the Brady Bunch launched. Ooh. And not only that, but guess who was born in, uh, in 1969 was none other than Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of how long it's been since this jobless rate was this low. So, what are you buying? so I'm buying our economy wow. in a big way. Um, good job, economy. Good job, um, Donald J. Trump for right now. Ooh. Adam Belmar, what are you buying or selling today? I am quite simply not buying. I don't know that anyone's ever pulled this on the Fury Theory podcast. What are you buying? What are you selling? I'm going to tell you what I'm not buying. What does that mean? I'm not buying. <laughs> I'm not buying cigarettes. Oh, okay. Uh, I've been a smoker for a long time. 
judge, if you will. But, uh, <laughs> I am uh, I'm no longer smoking and no longer buying cigarettes. And so my recommendation to you is don't try and fill that Belmar gap in the cigarette market. Just don't buy them. Nice. Well done. Well done, Alex. Nice. Well done. John, what are you buying or selling today? So uh, I'm going to be honest. Most of, uh, most of my focus is reinvesting in my community. So, I mean, we're spending every, every cent that we've got, every moment of our time, um, investing in our, in our folks in our town. Well done. Very and good. that's important. He's selling, he's, he's selling York. He's buying York, really. Buying yeah, I'm buying York, selling York. So, yeah, the York plan. That's what I'm, <laughs> that's York, what I'm here York selling. York plan 2.0. I'll buy it. Uh, I'll buy that as well. And uh, we're glad to have you on. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to buy. I'm buying uh, the Bob Woodward book, Fear. I'm reading it. And I'll tell you, the more I read it, the more I like Trump. I, you know, it's just a fascinating portrayal of the president behind the scenes, you know, being a badass, being a jackass, and, t- and mixing things up, which I think the White House needed. And I, th- I love reading all of Woodward's books because I think they're fascinating, and they're mostly true, which is a nice thing. Uh, John McGilliott, thank you so much for joining the Fury Theory Podcast. I thought this was an excellent discussion about AI. We don't have any artificial intelligence here. It's all There's a question native. about how much intelligence of <laughs> actual varieties. As a matter of fact, we don't have any intelligence about John. <laughs> We're glad that you joined the show. Uh, Please tune in next time. EFB, uh, the Fear Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB. 